Thank you, Brother Jerry. That passage sets the tone for what we'd like to consider today. I would invite your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11. And before we read, uh, we want to personally say that it is a joy to be back with you all. We do miss you uh, as we work there at Bible school. Uh, it has been a busy time and uh, I believe profitable uh, in the work of the Lord there but we are mindful of the work here as well. Appreciate the many remembrances that you've sent along uh, to us along the way, and we would also continue to ask for your prayers as we attempt to span the massive generation gap between ourselves and the young people. It actually is great fun, so I won't say it's real work in that way. Uh, this term is uh, probably a better term than last term. We uh, had uh, young people last term that were good young people but had some uh, reluctance to get down to the work so it kind of felt like we were pulling them along and that gets a little tiring after a while. There are more self-starters in this group this term. That has its own set of problems but it's uh, a little easier in a way. So pray for us as we continue the work. We're well over halfway through the time that we'll be away and looking forward to returning uh, later on. Now this uh, study today uh, is a study that we do in some way or another every year. Uh, and that is this this assignment today is from 1 Corinthians 11 as we consider the headship order and its application. I'm not saying that it doesn't get mentioned at other times, but we make it a personal discipline as part of the ministry to, to at least look at it together once a year. I would like you to follow along as I read this passage, and then we want to think about it together as it applies to us. And may I say right up front, this is not uh, about women alone. It is about men and women, and the failures that we have across the church today uh, are due largely uh, to the abdication of men and their rightful responsibility. It gets easy for us men to blame the women, but that is not where the blame normally rests. And so keep that in mind as we read together. Beginning at verse 1, the apostle says, Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head, every, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. 
Every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman or woman independent of man in the Lord. For as the woman came from man, even so man comes through woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is glory. It is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. The context goes on in verse 17 as he shifts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit his attention to the Lord's table. Uh, and uh, he says, now in giving these instructions, and so these are instructions for us. Uh, and the last part of the chapter, of course, deals with the Lord's table, the communion ordinance. And the first part of the chapter deals with uh, the headship order and the ordinance of veiling. So I trust we'll remember this as the word of God and ask the Lord at this time to teach us through this scripture. May we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of looking at your word and we ask you to teach us from your word through your Holy Spirit. As we look at this passage, it is easy for some of us to highly endorse it. It is also easy for some others of us to resist it and to question it. We know that it is not here by some accident. We know that it is applicable to us today. And we pray that you will help us not merely to observe it as a part of the letter of your word, but to observe it in spirit and in truth. And so, we ask, Father, that you will take away from our hearts resistance to your truth, as well as 
that legalism which merely requires obedience to the letter. And help us to have open hearts and minds to what you have to say to the church today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe the main emphasis of this passage is on headship and the creation order. We dwell usually on the application of that as we think of the veiling. And we will do some of that today. However, it is important to understand that God is talking here to us in the 21st century through the Apostle Paul by the Spirit of God about headship and the order that God has given for society. The veiling is merely a reflection of that order. That order is a part of creation, as we've said. And if we were to go back to Genesis 2, and some of us did that yesterday uh, at the service, we rehearsed there the order of creation. And I want us to understand a principle from that creation order. Man was created with headship under God. Woman was created as uh, a complement, a fulfiller, a helper fit for man. So if you want to look at it in the original creation, I believe that it can be demonstrated from Scripture that Eve was under authority before the fall. That headship precedes the fall. And that this submission that is called for in the passage that was read earlier by Brother Jerry is a submission that runs from the beginning, before the fall, through the ruin of the fall, to the restoration in the future. It is a part of God's order. We have failure, both in leadership and headship on the part of men, and in the submissive role or complementary role of women. It's very easy to point fingers. It's very easy for women to look at men in their common failures 
And I doubt if any man in this room who is honest before God would say he's got this all together. It's very easy for the women to look at the men and say, well, you do not lead well. You are not a good head. And so you're very hard to follow. Uh, and to some extent, we have to admit that is true. But that does not change God's order. And men need to take seriously the teachings of this passage and look to the grace of God to provide headship uh, of a quality by the grace of God now, not in our own strength, but by the grace of God in a quality that will make it, and this is a goal, okay? will make it as easy, goal-wise, though we're not perfect, make it as easy to follow as Christ is easy to follow. The headship order is Christ, man, and woman. The example is the relationship between God, uh, reflecting uh, God the Father, and Christ, God the Son. It is not a question of equality. Christ is equal to God the Father. It is rather a question of role and position. And we do a great disservice to the scripture if we suggest that one is more important than the other, that one uh, is unequal with the other. The scripture clearly teaches that Christ and God are equal. They are one, but they have different roles within the Godhead. And so, the illustration then of that, man and woman, man and woman are equal. Neither being inferior to the other. Now, in history, we've had times when men have been seen as superior. That is against Scripture. But we've had times when men have been seen as superior to women. And that is wrong. The feminist movement of the last couple of generations has attempted to put forth the idea that women are superior to men. And on their worst day, they may they might be as low as men, but normally much above men. That is as wrong as the other view that men are superior to women. God would not have that type of competition any more than Christ and God the Father are in competition. They aren't. And the one is not above the other, but in authority, 
God the Father has the role of authority, and Christ voluntarily submits to the Father. And he taught that repeatedly. Now, just how that is in the present might be debated, but in terms of the work of Christ here on the earth, that was demonstrated. That he totally, voluntarily submitted himself to his equal, God the Father. And that then is the principle of headship. God the Father, God the Son, voluntarily submitting to the Father. And man, voluntarily submitting to Christ. And woman, voluntarily submitting to man. That's headship order. That is, I believe, creation order. And that is the foundation upon which any application you take from the rest of the passage rests. I had thought uh, to entitle this message, Did Eve Wear a Veiling? I thought better of that. Uh, but a veiling of the cloth kind she probably did not wear before the fall and did wear after the fall because of what happened in that ruin. But some of that is conjecture, and we're not here to conjecture. We're here to study the scriptures together. May we say then that built upon the principle of headship, we have the application of this passage. And for us to simply legislate veiling without an understanding of the principle is rather empty. And I think the church has suffered many times because of that sort of thing. Uh, and unfortunately, some sisters will, in answer to the question, why do you wear that thing on your head, uh, will simply respond, the church says so. My church says so, that's what my church does. Which isn't wrong, but it's not good. Because it's far more than that. It is the principle of the Word of God regarding headship reflected in an article of clothing. In other words, principles of the Word of God always need to be applied. And so I ask our evangelical brothers at times, when we talk about these sorts of things, okay, let's read 1 Corinthians 11. Let's apply to 1 Corinthians 11 the same principles of interpretation that we apply to any other scripture. And then I ask them, so what are you going to do with it? You have to do something with it. 
you must do something with every scripture. You must interpret it, yes, then you must put it into some level of action. To leave it uh, ignored is sin. We must do something with 1 Corinthians 11. We are not permitted to take our scissors and cut it out and throw it away. We must put it into action in the same way that we put the last half into action. Now some evangelicals have disregarded the last half as well. And there are people who claim to believe the Bible who do not practice communion. Uh, but if we're going to be honest with Scripture, it must be practiced. In other words, what we say we believe must be somehow put into the fabric of our daily lives. And that is a problem. And those who don't practice the veiling admittedly have a problem. Uh, many will say, well, that was, that was good for Corinth, but it's not good for today. Uh, it was speaking to a particular problem that they had in Corinth. Probably was. But it is also speaking to a particular problem that we have in Harrisonburg. Uh, and if that is not the case, if it does not speak to us, if it is not required to be practiced in some way, then certainly the last half of the passage is not required to be practiced in some way, namely the institution of the Lord's Supper. And then what about the rest of Scripture? Do I take what I like and leave the rest? If you take the rule of interpretation that I just mentioned that some would take, that this is for Corinth and it doesn't apply to us, then what does apply to us? As you move further and further away from a belief in the importance of Scripture to us today, you will eventually get to the position that some have gotten, which is to say that even salvation, as we understand it from the scripture, is for another day. And there are actually people with the audacity to write books and say that the reason Christ and the apostles presented the doctrine of salvation, example John 3 and such other passages, the reason they presented that was that the, that the Jews of that time and some of the Gentiles of that time had a very deep sense of lostness that we don't have anymore, 
uh, they had a real deep sense of lostness. And so this whole scheme, they would say, of salvation through the shed blood of Christ was invented uh, to meet that perceived need that they had. But since we don't have that need, we don't have to worry about it. Now that is in the extreme, but that is where that type of interpretation ends up, if you follow it to its logical conclusion. And so, while not everything in the faith hangs on 1 Corinthians 11, what you do with 1 Corinthians 11 does have a bearing on an awful lot of other things. If you cut it out and say that it doesn't apply to us today, then the question that immediately follows is, what does apply to us today? And so it is an extremely important passage, as is every other passage in the scripture. And so I asked my evangelical friends, so what are you going to do with it? You have to do something with it by your own doctrine. What are you going to do with it? And unfortunately, uh, some of my friends will say, yeah, that's what it means, and that's what we ought to do. But if I preach that, half of the women in my church would walk out. And that's a terrible confession. And so let us understand that we take this to mean what it says it means. That the, the veiling is a reflection of the creation order principle. And that reflection is required. And it is some type of a cloth covering. And for those who, of our holiness friends who say that the covering is the hair, let's, re, let's be reminded that there are two different Greek words for covering. Uh, the first part of the chapter, or first part of the passage, is one word, which infers a cloth covering. The last part of the passage in verse 15, her hair is given to her for a covering. The word covering there is a different Greek word. And so there are two words for covering in this passage. And it is true her hair is given to her for a covering, but it is also true that there is to be an additional covering, and the scripture would require it. Now, let me just deal with some levels of resistance. It would be my impression that there is resistance uh, to the teaching here And that resistance is reflected in some cases, perhaps not all, by size. If you don't like something and you resist it, you minimize it. And so as we see in the broader church, the coverings and veilings getting smaller and smaller, I believe that in many cases, if not in all, it is a sign of resistance from the heart. It doesn't mean you have to wear the biggest one you can find, but it is by its definition a covering. 
it is to veil the woman's glory, which according to this passage is her hair. Does it have to cover every bit of hair? I don't think we particularly need to discuss that. It needs to cover substantially is what we as a church say. So whether it covers every bit of hair is probably not so much the point as it is a visible covering of the head. And it should not be neglected and it should not be minimized. When we resist the symbol, we resist what it symbolizes. When we minimize the symbol, we minimize what it symbolizes. The principle is the creation order that is clearly taught in scripture and it must be lived out in practice. It is true that we do not believe what we do not practice. We make glorious statements, and I traveled, of course, with uh, another evangelical group before we were Mennonites. And it is true that people can make glor glorious statements of faith. But the true test is whether or not they're willing to put shoe leather to those statements. The group that I traveled with at that time did not, was not so willing. And Mennonites do not have it all together, nor are we the only ones that practice the covering. But it's important that any student of the scriptures practice the veiling as a testimony that we do believe what the Bible says, and specifically that we do believe what the Bible says about the headship order. And when people do not wear the veiling, it may be through ignorance. Uh, they haven't read that. They haven't thought about that. I haven't been taught that, but it is most likely due to resistance and rejection, not only of the veiling, but of the principle that stands behind it. Not all things that God asks us to do are pleasant. An Old Testament example that I have often used regarding the veiling, and the example has nothing directly to do with the veiling, is the example of the Old Testament personality, Naaman, who was sent by a little girl to the land of Israel to be healed. And the prophet of God told him to go bathe in the Jordan River. And he said, that's a dirty old river. 
I can bathe in the clear, clean rivers back home. But he had been asked to take a step of faith in practice and to bathe in the Jordan River, muddy though it may have been. And he was urged to take that step of faith. It was not pleasant for him. It was humiliating for him. But when he bathed there, he was healed. And so it is with the headship order and with the symbol of the headship order, the reflection of the headship order. It may not be pleasant. In fact, if it's totally pleasant in the flesh, there may be other problems. But it is that step of faith that God requires. We have apostasy around us in many things, including this thing. Once universally practiced across the Church of Jesus Christ, apostasy has made its inroads and this is not universally practiced as it was once. We would not need to say these things 150 years ago if we were in a Bible-believing church. The practice was universal. <coughs> but it has fallen away. There's been apostasy. And it has not fallen away by itself. Alone. Issues of simplicity, of lifestyle, respect for the Lord's day, biblical family life, non-resistance, church attendance, particularly at services in addition to Sunday morning. All these things are in the process of falling away as well. And these things are taught in the scripture. And so we live in a day of apostasy. It should not seem strange that there is apostasy in this area. But that doesn't change the word of God. It does not change the requirements of the word of God. Now, as I suggested at the beginning, the responsibility for apostasy in the area of headship rests primarily with the men. In this way, men have not been good heads. Men have allowed women to do it for them. They have been lazy. 
They have not provided good leadership. And I'm not saying that to this church in particular. I would own it myself. I think men in general uh, have not done well in areas of leadership. They have been hard to follow. Let's take, for example, another person in the, in the creation order, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. If he were grumpy and always rebuking and unfair and selfish, none of which he is, but if he were, wouldn't he be a little hard to follow? and submit yourself to? I suppose he would. And so in those ways and in others, men have not done well and they need to come under accountability and subjection to Christ. We do. In order to make it more pleasant for the sisters to follow in the headship order. Men have also tended to get off scot-free in terms of some of the applications of Scripture. We are not necessarily, we have not necessarily asked men to dress differently from the world in which we live. And we have asked the sisters to dress at least somewhat differently. Men have succumbed to styles that probably aren't the best in many cases, and yet have attempted to hold the sisters to styles that are different. And so, in fact, men have not done well in their role of headship order under Christ. And we find it easy to rebuke the sisters for having not done well in their role. So I call the men to examine their own lives and to think about following Christ. For you'll notice that this passage starts out in verse 1 with the command, imitate me or follow me as I follow Christ, or as I imitate Christ. Now that doesn't excuse the women to disobey the scripture, but it will make that easier for them to obey it if the men are taking their place in the headship order. It would be easier to follow a man who could honestly say with the Apostle Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. And so this message is to the men in a sense. It may be somewhat about the women, but it is to the men and to the women. We need to be able to say to the sisters, follow me as I follow Christ. 
As again, I say it's not an excuse. If your husband is not following Christ as you think he ought to, that is not an excuse for you to fall out of the creation order. But the brothers can certainly make it easier for the sisters in this way. Now you may say, well, you know, Brother Paul, you haven't treated the text very much, and I haven't. We have treated it regularly, year after year. But I have tried to make some applications for us from the text. There are some problems in the text. There are ways to question what is said. But there is no way to disregard what is said. Sometimes all the questions from the text, and I say sometimes, not always, but sometimes all the questions that we have about the text are simply ways that we're trying to argue with the text and disregard it. And so we have assumed some level of, a, some level of knowledge of this text, that it does in fact teach a cloth veiling of some kind, a veiling that covers the hair. Every strand, not necessarily. It covers the head in some way. That meets the specifications required here. If it's simply a tiny veiling, then it probably does not meet the specifications of this passage. He talks about the issue of being shorn or shaved. I dare say that if any of the sisters here were shaved and bareheaded, we would take note of them. And by comparison, we are supposed to take note of their veiling. So it could not be meant to be tiny. You have these comparisons in the passage. People wonder about the term of the angels. What does that mean? I would have to honestly say I'm not sure. I have a view. But whatever it means about the angels doesn't change the teaching of the passage. The central teaching we have been discussing. And so I would ask us not to be hung up on the details. It's fine to study them and understand them and seek to understand them. But let's not deny the whole principle on the basis of something that we don't quite agree on. We must agree on the central teaching of the passage. The central teaching is that this is about the headship order, God, Christ, man, woman. That's what it's about. And it's about further reflecting our submission to that creation order. Hard and difficult though it may be. I want to affirm the sisters of this congregation in their obedience to this passage. 
I realize it is not always easy, and I realize there are temptations on every hand. And I realize the men have not always done their job well, and I include myself there. But I want to affirm the sisters in their practice of what they believe and what we believe. I'm so appreciative of the testimony that our sisters have. May it continue. And may we meet temptation with the power of the Word of God by the Spirit of God to live in accordance with the Scripture and honor the principles that God has given us. May we pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this, your word. Help us not to take it lightly and give us victory where we are tempted to disregard it. Bless the sisters who obey, who obey this reflection of a timeless principle of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.